Hello and welcome to Nightlight. There's some basic questions that should naturally come to mind when we first read the opening chapters of Job. We'll have to address those questions best we can before we can make any sense of the big picture. For the big picture in Job's personal story is preceded and brought into existence by a much bigger picture which we will get into in a moment, but let's try to address just these basic questions that we all have. Number one, when was Job written and by who? Is it a historically accurate story or is it perhaps just an allegory or legend or fable? Is it inspired by God and therefore, like Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, good for doctrine, reproof, and instruction in righteousness? But if it is, why is it so mysterious? And finally, is it the book of Job that has the difficulties, or is it our shallow, modern expectation of easy answers that is really the problem when it comes to not understanding Job very well? Well, We don't know who first wrote it down or any exact dates. We know that the written record is somewhat late, but we know the story itself is very old, which is is why sometimes you may read that Job is the oldest book in the Old Testament, and others will say, no, it's not. Well, they're both right, and they're both wrong. The reason for various dates and authors is that it seems to have been added to and altered and somewhat abridged over many years, perhaps centuries and by various contributors, not altered so much as to deform the story or make it untrustworthy, but just enough to give scholars something to research and in some cases, in my humble opinion, nitpick over. Read some scholars and you'll come away thinking Moses wrote it. Read others and they suggest it was finally all put together during the exile in Babylon and developed by scribes from the Second Temple Judaism period because it has certain Aramaic elements. I won't bore you with various other ideas for unless you are more interested in the scholarly historical background information, you would glaze over at the many opinions that could be cited. The point is that the book is telling a story of a remotely distant past with a very contemporary meaning. I tend to believe it was given by revelation to a single author, unknown, and amended through long years into the form we have now. Like the ancient cathedrals, no one participating in such a grand project would be concerned as we are today with who gets the final credit. and Far more they're concerned with what they're building. And in this case, far more concerned with what's being communicated through the epic drama. So in my opinion, the mystery of the book of Job's origins and what it reveals in both the heavenly and earthly realms is a gift from God through human elements And those human elements are hindered from total accuracy by their very time and place and cultural humanity. Those human elements are hindered uh, like all ancient texts with things hard to understand, things we might misinterpret or things we might try to build upon giving it more authority than the text gives it, and I'm probably getting into issues that are too too complicated here for any listeners. So, in other words, not every word in Job is to be taken as a solid theological revelation upon which to build a true picture of things in the invisible world, but it did happen. And what is recorded is part of an unfolding picture. We have to discern as we go with the help of the Holy Spirit. So since both Ezekiel 14 and James chapter 5 refer to Job as a real historical figure, from that point alone we can be assured that the story is about an ancient, ancient even for them, 
real man whose story is real. We know his name. We are not told his pedigree or even his ex, uh, exact location in either time or geography. This, to me, strongly points to the Holy Spirit's intention to say to us, so to speak, listen, before the story of Abraham and the unfolding history of Israel can be told, I want you to see this. The man is the battlefield upon which the Creator God and the enemy of God and man will meet. They will engage in the war that will end in the total defeat of evil, the total restoration and glorification of man as his father originally intended. But you cannot know all that yet. So as you read Job, you must remember that Job is that battlefield and that Job did not have access to the more complete story or reason behind the events that he was suffering. And at times you will be in his same situation. But as you read, you will come to know by Job's story some more of what he had to endure, and he endured it without the extra knowledge that you have. There is a reason for God's wisdom allowing both Job and sometimes you to be without needed information. But left to trust God's ultimate purpose for good. And that trust is worth far, far more to you than any momentary satisfaction of your understanding that answers your painful questions. For this battle is not about winning or losing any particular territory. It is about trust and love, even if it must be trust and love in the dark. If the story was a mere legend or an allegory, it could not have much moral power. I would only be a mere, it would really only be like a novel some ancient writer came up with. Of course, it's true that mere stories can be powerful to some degree. That's what parables, fables, and legends are. They're not true, but they are real in the sense that what they point to and the lessons they offer uh, are real. Frodo didn't really battle evils of every kind and uh, finally reached the crack of doom to destroy the ring. But the story has great power to generate truths that are certainly real and can and do have tremendous effects on those who take them to heart. Job goes beyond that. The unveiling of the cosmic drama of Job is far too large to be only a parable, for it seeks to address not just Job's personal story or even the earthly sufferings of a good man. No, it dares to go behind the cosmic curtain and address the entire mystery of all evil in the universe. And true to reality, as it seems to be most often, it does not offer a simple, easy explanation, a one-for-one, this-causes-that formula that we tend to expect and even demand. When placed in the chronology of the historical events of beginnings, Job seems to be timed somewhere around the era of the building of the Tower of Babel. At some relative time, maybe shortly after. We know that Job Job was not a Hebrew. He was from the land of Uz, the region associated with Edom. Job is written in Hebrew, but very ancient and difficult Hebrew. There are more unique, singular Hebrew words and phrases used in the text of Job than in any other book in all of Scripture. Job lands in the chronology of beginnings of all things on earth. Creation, the entrance of sin, the rise of violence, the intrusion of supernatural evil, the destruction of the pre-flood world, the flood, the rise of post-flood civilization, 
in the shadow of the Tower of Babel, all huge symbols of the Earth's earliest ages. It's after the flood and at the origin of the post-flood civilization that we meet Job. It's before the birth of Israel, the raising up of Abraham and the twelve tribes, and the eventual giving of the law and the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, or the general knowledge of Yahweh given by Israel. So historians trace the rise of the world of paganism to the Tower of Babel. The materialism of idolatry spread in opposition to faith in the invisible real. That's how I'm defining paganism, which we still have today, don't we? And though this lie spreads quickly over the human race, there were those who stood in real faith even before Abraham. These God-honoring pre-Jewish Gentiles, which really you can't call them Gentiles, but we we will just for this present time together. These pre-Jewish Gentile people were descendants of those who knew and honored the invisible true God, which they learned from Noah and his descendants. Alfred Edersheim writes in his Old Testament history, quote, The inward searching of man after a God, the accusing voice of man's conscience, the attempt to offer sacrifices, and the remnants of ancient traditions of truth among men, all seem to point upward. They point to God. And God had his own even among the Gentile nations. Job, Melchizedek, Rahab, Ruth, Naaman, just to name a few. But the fullest example of this is set before us in the book of Job. Again, we typical Western readers want to know if the details are exact and accurate. In other words, we want a fast, clear, easy answer to an ancient, mysterious, and protracted conflict. We hate having to wrestle, to think deeply, to encounter mystery. And we hate, most of all, not having a clear, plain, orderly conclusion to our questions. It's part of the majesty and wisdom of the story that no such simplistic answers are revealed. Lest you think I'm talking down to you. Remember, I'm the guy who was just uh, being described by what I just said, who wanted and expected and demanded easy, readable, explainable responses to inexplicable mysteries and who will throw my Bible across the room when I don't get them at the end of the story. I find I'm still not given the clear answer I was expecting in some ways, and I've been studying this for decades. As I said previously, I did not get my, quote, answer. I got something far better. I got an invitation from the Holy Spirit to begin walking with him on a long journey that will eventually lead me to all answers. So let's try to summarize what we've heard so far. Job certainly did exist. His story is very ancient and difficult both to translate and to grasp once it is translated. Job is not Hebrew, so in this sense, Job is every man. He is the human. Job may have been a contemporary of Abraham or even may have preceded him, But Job is placed in the chronology of history as the earliest human story following the flood and the rise of the Tower of Babel. If this is true, then why? What's the story of Job meant to help us as readers of the inspired scripture to understand? It's understandable that we think first of Abraham instead of Job since Abraham is the father of the Jewish and eventually the Christian faith. And that is right, but before the revelation of the true God to Abraham, God seems to want us to know about the wrestling and struggling of Job, who is not a son of Abraham, who does not have the level of relationship with God yet, 
that we tend to project onto Job from our lack of understanding, but who somehow comes to know enough of what God is and who God is that his early pre-Israeli human life becomes the battlefield between the accuser of man and man's creator, redeemer, father. Yes, I do mean that Job is for a time the earthly location of the heavenly war that seems to be waged between God, the God of all creation, and a certain being, obviously a created being, called in the Hebrew text not Satan, but Hasatan. Just like all of life, this is not an easy story. It's not spelled out clearly and is not clearly understood even at the close. It takes work. Most of all, it takes prayerful listening. Only the spirit of wisdom and revelation from God can open up its mysteries. If we want nuts and bolts, physical history in our hands to prove it is real and accurate, we won't find it. If we demand fast, simplistic answers, we will not read them. Just as living life demands willingness to wait and see as we go, so reading Job demands similar patience. Big answers cannot be contained in small spaces. Long histories and futures cannot be perceived in fast, easy-to-understand moments. We come up against that which makes natural man either rage against it or just ignore it as myth. There could not have been a human eyewitness to the events described in the first few chapters of Job. It all takes place in the realm which is invisible and unreachable by us. How was it revealed and to whom? The fact that we don't know who wrote it and the fact that it has various human elements that seem to have been added along the way suggests two possibilities, and I believe both possibilities are important and viable. First possibility is that it was a direct revelation from God to a single inspired author who wrote as he was moved on by the Spirit. That's how Paul describes all Scripture. Please note, by the way, here's an aside, but an important aside. The wording that the writer writes as he is moved upon by the Spirit, that's the way Paul describes the inspiration of Scripture. That does not mean he is merely a robot in the hands of the Spirit. The human element is fully engaged. His mind thinks, his hand writes, his emotions and experiences are present in the story, his cultural influences are there, but it's all inspired by the Spirit. This leaves room for the humanity of the story to be expressed, but does not in any way diminish the fact of divine inspiration. Now, the second possibility is less directly supernatural, but no less directed by God, and that is that the elements of the story of Job were handed down from generation to generation and came to us finally as the book of Job in Hebrew Scripture, but with all the elements of its various inclusions and different difficult, hard-to-translate and interpret aspects purposefully left for us to have to wrestle through. And each person, each reader, each wrestler with his or her own Job-like battles must look to the Holy Spirit and his revealing power to come to any helpful conclusions while we read. Either way, whether directly revealed at the very beginning or slowly developed as an ancient but still historical story, it's the Holy Spirit who ultimately authored it. And his purpose in presenting it in the frustrating style that we have is to help us all learn to wrestle. And when we are desperate enough and needy enough and hungry enough, then he himself will meet us in our own struggle with the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, that being true, and I believe it is, let me stop here a moment and tell you how we're going to proceed with this study. I've read more than I ever wanted to on the Job 
scholarship. And I haven't touched the many volumes that have been written. I can give you some high points from history and style and linguistics. All this and more, I hope, will help answer some of your basic questions. I don't at all depend uh, on that alone for a fruitful time in the study of Job. Because most of us don't come to Job for a history lesson. We come because our own personal struggles. We hope to find some answers. So that's what I most want to help you to do. I hope to be a guide down roads I have traveled. And I hope to be able to help you avoid some pitfalls like throwing your Bible across the room. But I can only take you so far. At some point, if you are seriously seeking truth, you will come to a place where you and I will have to part ways, not because I don't care, not even because we may disagree on some major points, but we will part because no one can know your journey but you and Jesus. You will know when that moment comes. It may not be till we're at the end of this message, this whole series of messages, or it may be at some point before that when you turn from me and cry out to the Lord directly for help that I cannot give. And that moment, whenever it is, will be a great moment for you because that will be where your study ends and your intimate pursuit of Jesus deepens. Uh, there's one more introductory point to keep in mind, though it is of such vital importance that I should not call it an introductory point, for it guides or should guide all our reading and all our understanding of Scripture, and that has to do with what is known as progressive revelation. This is such a large and important topic that to give it its due here would take us too far off the path, but yet if we don't take some time to address it sufficiently, our understanding of Job and of all Scripture will be damaged. Progressive revelation refers to the obvious fact that what we read and what we see in a certain page of writing says, for instance, in Genesis, not, uh, not the whole story. It's, it's, it's a fragment. It's a flash of light, not the whole unveiling of full light. There's an unfolding story that cannot be fully understood without latter parts that are yet to come. In order to keep things clear and unmanageable, we have to keep this principle in mind with Job. Job actually has elements in it that will further explain some of Genesis. But we can't get into that right now, though I'd like to. But Job is a progressively revealing writing that helps us understand Genesis. While its uncovering of more questions can make us have more questions than we got answered while we were reading it all. And this goes on and on and on, and it leads us forward. There are many aspects of Scripture for which this is undeniably true. And if we keep that truth in mind, we will not fall into the treacherous error of thinking that every word we read is a given text uh, that is authoritative and valuable, equal to all other texts. I mean, you don't really believe that, do you? Uh, do you truly think Ecclesiastes is on the same level as the Gospel of John or Romans? Well, of course not. That doesn't mean God did not direct the writing of Ecclesiastes, but what was his purpose? It was sure not the same level of purpose he had for moving on the writers of the New Testament. Yet it is in the Bible because it has a particular place in the unfolding story. That's why proof texting is so unhelpful. I can give some sad or funny or sadly funny examples, but I will refrain for now. Now let me say something that may sound odd. Job does not know God very well. 
To use his own words from chapter 26, verse 14, Job says, he only can see the outskirts of God's ways and can only faintly hear the whisper of him. That's the way he views himself. See, Job does not know what God thinks of Job because here's what God God says about Job. He says he's a perfect man who shuns evil and lives an upright life above all others on the earth. That's what God says about Job. What I'm trying to help us consider here is not easy, so please listen closely, for there is obviously so much we don't know. So I offer this reverently, asking the Holy Spirit to help me, to help us see clearly. Some scholars try to claim that this being called Hasatan, and the Ha is important, I'll explain in a minute, the it's not a it's not a personal name satan it shouldn't be capitalized in this text ha satan means ha the satan the adversary he's not satan as we come to know him in that terminology we will eventually see in many scriptures and just call him satan but this character in Job is an un, they say, these scholars say, this character in Job is an unfallen angel who is part of the angelic council of God and who is given the job by God of going up and down in the earth and gathering evidence with which to bring charges. He's kind of a prosecuting attorney, so to speak. The eventual term devil refers to ha-satan, the Satan, the slanderer, or the, the adversary. But, but the word devil has to do with more than gathering true information to use as a case against someone. He, the word devil is slanderer, giving rise to the belief that at some point he moved from being a mere adversary gathering evidence with which to prosecute to one of fabricating lies with which to destroy. Jesus did say, didn't he, that Satan is a liar and the father of lies and that he seeks to kill and steal and destroy. So from that viewpoint, this is accurate. It does seem progressive. And in some ways, we cannot understand without more data Ha-Satan is the adversary to God and eventually devolves into a devil who disregards all pretense of truth and justice and is especially hateful toward humanity whom he finally seeks always to destroy and murder. This seems right to me. But the idea that this being in Job is not Satan, but only a drone of some kind, merely doing his bureaucratic job for the divine counsel, that I don't accept. That limitation may be one of those limitations of the writer who is only able to give the best he can an understanding from his limited point of view. But knowing what we know from this end, I don't buy the idea that there's a big difference between Hasatan and the Satan and devil that we all know. If we are going to make an already difficult story more difficult by coming to such conclusions as that, I would rather forget all this and just watch Bugs Bunny cartoons. I believe there's a progressive unfolding of certain aspects of the Bible story of redemption that being uh, that we see in Genesis 3, known as the serpent, is the same being we see in Job 1, who is the adversary. And he is the being we see in Matthew 4 as the tempter. And every time we encounter him, he is evil and seeking to destroy what God loves. He may be getting more and more and more evil as he acts to deceive and destroy until finally we see him in his fullest, most evil form 
in Revelation chapter 12, where he is now the great dragon, where all his names then are listed at once, the old serpent, who is called Satan and the devil. Or he may have become the dragon early on, and we are only getting the progressive understanding of who he is. So what's the great scholarly mystery here? I don't want to be disrespectful to scholars who are much smarter than me, much better educated than me, but sometimes I am really amazed at what they focus on and how unnecessarily complicated they can make things. One more point on progressive revelation, but an important point. To me, maybe the biggest point of all. This principle applies to many important truths, but unlike Hasatan, who may have begun on a certain level of evil and then eventually devolved to become the dragon, that is not applicable to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is progressive unfolding of who and what Messiah is until he is finally understood to be, as Luke records, Messiah God. In Luke 9, Peter declares when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? You are Messiah God. And while we're here, let me say this as clearly as I can. Jesus is not only Messiah God, he is the final, complete, total revelation of God that there is. He is the final word. And all previous words must be measured against him and overruled by him. So he can say, quote, You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. I stress this because we do not read scriptures and aim at eventually getting to Jesus. We should begin with Jesus as our final authority, and anything that does not match up to him or is not affirmed by him is not authoritative. I'm not saying that there's not a progressive revelation of of Jesus in Scripture that we can begin in Genesis at and finally arrive at the full revelation. Of course, that's true, but I'm speaking of our own personal study of Scripture. When I read something in the Old Covenant that doesn't match the heart and character of the Lord Jesus, there's no doubt in my mind which of the two authorities I'm going to bow to. For an example, Luke chapter 9, James and John are angry at some Samaritans who want to, and they, James and John want to call fire down on them because they have Scripture. They've got an example in Scripture of doing that. Jesus' response is one of the strongest rebukes rec- recorded in the Gospels aimed at the disciples especially at John, who was so close to Jesus. Jesus is not interested in their seeming correct use of Bible verses. He is there, and all acts of vengeance and wrath are off the table now. If you don't get anything else at all from this study, get this. Jesus is the final, complete revelation of God, and we interpret and reinterpret all previous Scripture by him. Take the words of Hebrews chapter 1 deep into your core. I'm quoting from the New English translation, which I tend to really like, especially here, which says, when in former times God spoke to our forefathers, he spoke in fragmentary and varied fashion through the prophets. But in this final age, he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he made heir of all things, and by whom he created all orders of existence. Love that. It's really hard for me not to go off on this and just forget the rest of this teaching, but I'll refrain. So what is happening in the heavenly council that would allow Hasatan to come and go so freely? Well, there are guesses we don't fully know. Keep in mind progressive and fragmented revelation. Don't think you can sketch a mere cartoon-level version of God from Job and think 
you have the complete multidimensional full-color portrait. We can see some things rightly from the sketch that we're looking at. I mean, even Paul, even the Apostle Paul says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, we see through a glass darkly. I mean, if Paul saw through a glass darkly, when he's the writer of most of the New Testament, I can I can take some comfort in the things I don't understand, knowing that eventually they'll be they'll be explained to me. Anyway, we can see some things rightly from the sketch, but let's not think that we have the whole portrait. Even after the evil intrusion in the garden, where the serpent sets in motion the fall of man, he seems to be able to run around in the universe seeking whom he may devour, or at least in those early days of human history, seeking whom he may trip up and cause to fall and then accuse. So here in this very early stage of the human story, man is willfully choosing evil and rejecting God. But it is God himself who seems to challenge Hasatan by pointing out to him a perfect man named Job. Keep in mind the root meaning of the word perfect here. We've seen that Job is not totally mature, There's a great deal he does not know or understand. What is perfect in him in God's sight, which is the only sight that matters, is that at at his stage of development, the stage of development that is available to Job in his era, Job has fully embraced all he has been given of God to understand. So at his stage of existence... God considers Job perfect. Like your three-year-old. He's a perfect three-year-old. That doesn't mean he can shoot a gun or graduate from college or raise a family. He's not a perfect, full, mature being, but he's a perfect three-year-old. God intends to take Job further up and further in. And he is also intending to make Job's story a blueprint for all the rest of us when we also face our ongoing maturing process. Job is not the final blueprint, but only one that at the beginning must be understood. So his story is placed at the very unfolding of events related to the beginning of creation. Now you know how the story goes. Satan challenges God by saying Job's righteousness is only because God guards and protects him and blesses him. Now allow me to strike all he has, Satan says, and he will curse you to your face. This seems to be a divine trap being set by God. I mean, Obviously you don't think God didn't know and God wondered how he was going to handle this. Remember that God is the one who brought Job into focus of Hasatan. So God is the initiator of this whole conflict. Satan's response is to accuse God of protecting Job because he seems to believe that God is maybe afraid that if Job is not so blessed and protected, he will turn away from him. Job will turn away from God. At least that's the accusation. God obviously knows every detail of what is going on and is setting a trap for the enemy. We would like the trap to spring in the story and have a total victory that satisfies our desire for justice all in one sitting. But this story is a long unfolding one. But when we read these kind of stories, I mean, they sound maybe parochial or even fairy tale like but so does the whole story of two naked people frolicking through the garden and being confronted by a talking snake pushing fruit at them. Or a number of other ancient stories we fail to understand because we have a literalist modern mindset and don't know how to read ancient literature Whatever was really happening in the invisible realm between God and Satan, there is a cosmic drama of huge 
proportions focused on a single individual man on planet earth. And what was being hashed out between God and Satan, so to speak, would have huge ramifications for Job personally. And his story would eventually be placed in scripture for all of us. So here is what I personally believe is happening. I offer it for your consideration. I do so with the full awareness that I may be missing something obvious. But I have been chewing on these stories for many decades. So at least give me a hearing. We don't know why there is anything at all, do we? So we don't know why there is a universe, a solar system, a planet, or a human race. And we sure don't know why this tiny blue planet, third from the sun in a relatively tiny solar system in a relatively small portion of the galaxy, would become what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as the theater of the universe. So with all that, we don't know. We are totally dependent on the spirit of revelation, as I've said before, to guide us. That being said, Whatever happened to cause this created cherub, he's not an angel, he's a cherub, and a cherub is not a fat little baby angel with useless bird wings that is found on Hallmark cards. The cherubim are a high, maybe the highest, glorious, godlike, terrifying beings, and this one is above even the cherubim. Something has caused this one to become adverse. He's the adversary, ah, Satan, the the adversary. He's become adverse to whatever God is doing and seems to especially be adverse to the human race and has set himself to ruin it. We don't have time to examine Ezekiel 28 or Isaiah 14 or many other scriptures that offer some more clues But when they're all placed together like parts of a crashed airplane, you can get at least a gleaning of the whole story. It's in the context of this ongoing and unfolding and seemingly ever-increasing conflict coming from this deformed and increasingly deforming godlike being that God not only accepts his challenge, but now pushes the issue himself by seemingly stirring up the adversary to accept God's challenge. You say man will only love me if I bless him. I say he will not love me only when I bless him or for what he can get. I say he will stay true to me even in the face of great sorrow and loss. It's not a fairy tale. This is a true original story from which all lesser fairy tales and epic legends find their roots. Now, still there's some huge unanswered questions here at the beginning. I remember as a kid sitting in church and hearing various messages from time to time about Job. Those messages usually focused on the same general themes. Job is the object of a conversation between God and Satan. God purposefully stirs up the wager, for lack of a better word. When Satan challenges God to take away the hedge of protection, he is placed around Job, and Job would curse God to his face if that hedge was removed. We all pretty well know that story because we've heard it in church. Then another common theme would be to focus on Job's friends who come to comfort him, but who end up becoming tormentors instead of comforters. And we will spend some time on them. But in these early days of hearing about Job, I I wanted to stand up and yell, don't tell me this story again like it's a normal everyday conversation in heaven between God and Satan. Tell me what this is even all about. Why is this happening? I never got any answers. So at this point, before we attempt to unpack the long, intricate conversations between Job and his failing comforters, let's take a deep dive into my frustrated boyhood questions. 
Let's please don't just gloss over these questions and rush on into the earth view of the story. For to me, that's what made the book of Job seem like nothing more than a long morality tale or a grossly overlong parable with a weird beginning and a silly Hollywood happy ending. What is really going on in the spirit realm and why? I will just list my ideas here. We'll then try to fill them in bit by bit. But let me first just put them in your thinking. There's a divine council of angelic beings. That's a whole study in itself that's not been properly addressed by most most teachers. Uh, I wish we could spend some time on it, but uh, anyway, there's this council. God has established it. God has ordained it. Um, among the members of that council comes this Hasatan. That's all we know. Uh, the gods would be a, a correct term for them in the text. They're often referred to as the Elohim. Now, certainly, they're obviously not Elohim himself, the creator God. They are created. I don't know why that has to be explained. Shouldn't it's not? It doesn't have to be explained to y'all. But anyway, this fact is found in many places in Scripture. The fact of the divine council. And it's been sadly ignored by Bible teachers and preachers. I guess because they don't want to get too near to the reality of the supernatural and have questions come up that they can't answer. Anyway, there seems to be a possibility that there was disobedience and and, uh, rebellion, maybe not full-blown rebellion, but Again, we, we can't tell, was there, we, we tend to think that everything's okay and then boom, all of a sudden there's a rebellion and the fall of angels. Well, that, that's not real, really realistic. You don't go from loving obedience and worship of the Creator God to the next minute total demonic perversion and evil and twisting. It doesn't happen that way. So there's some kind of progressive disrespect of what God intends them to do and be. You see that in Psalm 82, for instance, uh, if you want to pursue that. And just realize that when it refers to the judges, it's not talking about earthly human judges, no matter what commentaries may say to you. Um, One in particular among these divine council beings is more glorious and more powerful than all the others and this one becomes an adversary of God and by extension then of man and maybe has become an adversary of God because of the creation of man whom he resents. He enters the garden in order to seduce and ruin man. Obviously God knows about it. More on that later. He arrogantly comes into another divine council gathering and instead of God rebuking him, get this, instead of God rebuking him and challenging him to a duel of power, of arm wrestling, he offers Satan, the human, as a battlefield. This is going to be terribly painful for Job who knows nothing of what's happening. But God considers this a vitally important battle, one fully worthy of what Job is going to have to to, to suffer. We'll discuss this point more in sessions to come, but let's stop here and examine a, a moment the issue of living for the long haul instead of the short term. What Eugene Peterson borrows from Frederick Nietzsche, of all people, as a long obedience in the same direction. Keep in mind, by the way, that's very important for you to remember when you're 
in your own battles that don't seem to have clear answers or quick endings. God who is totally present, totally powerful, totally wise, and totally love knows the outcome and will be what God originally intended. It will become what God originally intended. But this rebellion of the gods that is seemingly progressively becoming worse has caused God, if I can use that term, because nothing causes God to do anything. God knows exactly what he's doing from beginning to end. But this this freedom of choice among the angelic rebels gives God an opportunity, I can say it that way, to take another route to bring about his predestined intentions. So God must go beyond unfolding creation and merely decorating it, and he has to engage in warfare for the putting down of evil without doing so by mere power and also at the same time redeeming man. Through his full and final plan, which is hidden in the Trinity, that plan for man is is fully open. You understand, the plan to redeem man is hidden in a mystery that is not revealed until after the cross. But his plan for man is wide open for, for what, what he wants man to be. Though his full and final plan is hidden in the Trinity, his plan for man is fully open and known among the gods. So God displays man's potential for total union with him in spite of evil and suffering. And he does this by the battlefield of Job's story. But part of the necessary battle is Job's lack of information. Part, let me say that again. Part of the necessary involvement in Job's suffering is that he doesn't understand and he doesn't know. And the moment he would know, the, the battle would no longer be effective for what God is after in all of this. Now listen, Psalm 18 says, David says, uh, to the froward, God will appear froward. To the crooked, God will appear crooked. If there's something in your heart that wants to accuse God, because you don't know the whole story, and to whatever degree you want to accuse God, to that degree you don't know him yet, but you will. But if that's in you, it's because you see God crookedly and you accuse God of being crooked because you're crooked. That's not, I'm not saying that to be accusing or to shake a finger in your face. It's just a great revelation. I love it when God shows me I'm accusing him and it gives me opportunity to say, Father, what is it in me that is so quickly able to think less of you than who you really are because of this given situation? Help me. Help me transcend it, which he always does, because he who has begun a good work in me will complete it. So I don't wrestle with condemnation when I see something in me that is not mature. I just thank God for this opportunity to go on and transcend it. So let me let me let me go through this again, because I really, really want you to get this if you don't get anything else from this study. Though his full and final plan is hidden in the Trinity, which is the redemption of man, his plan for man is not hidden. It's wide open and known among the gods. So God displays man's potential for total union with himself, and and that potential is going to be proven in spite of evil and suffering. And it will happen on the battlefield of Job's life. But part of the necessary battle is that Job lacks information about it. God has revealed only enough of himself to Job 
to bring Job to the point of moral awakening. Job sees God through a glass darkly. Way more than, than even we do. In, but in God's eyes, from his perfect perspective, Job is a perfect and upright man who resists evil. And God is, for lack of a better term, very proud of Job. For God to bring many sons to glory, as it says he's doing in the book of Hebrews and many other places. God must reveal or not reveal certain truths in certain times. The revealing of some truths out of time would be detrimental. For instance, how would Job handle it if God appeared to him face to face and revealed what was going on behind the invisible curtain? It might alleviate Job's immediate inner conflict, but it would also at the same time deprive Job of the formation of the weight of eternal glory that is being formed in him. What is it that's causing him to form that weight of glory within him, his absolute refusal to believe that the terrible suffering he's going through is coming from the hand of God and coming as punishment because Job knows he has not done anything wrong. And we'll get into that more in detail here in the next session. And if I repeat myself, it's because it's worth repeating. It's because we need to have these things repeated until we get them on the core levels of our heart. It's Job's faithfulness to what he does know of God. Because there's a lot about God he doesn't know. His faithfulness to what he does know about God causes him to stand and stand and stand against all the voices of his so-called comforters. Uh, I don't want to run too far ahead and get into that. Job, remember the, the wager. The thing, the, the thing this is all about is the initial accusation of Satan that Job only honors and loves you because he knows uh, you bless and protect him and let me at him to hurt him badly and he will curse you to his face. That's the challenge. It's a challenge coming out of the core heart of a twisted being who was created perfect and has willfully rebuked wisdom because of his own arrogant pride. You can see that in Ezekiel 28. We might be tempted to go on and on here, conjecturing how this might have ever come about, but I think we have said all we can say with any certainty at this point. It's also clear to us that God is not taken by surprise by it and is not wondering how to deal with it. What we need to embrace for our own sake is that God is not responding to it in rage or vengeance or raw displays of power against Satan. Please keep that in mind as we approach God's eventual confrontation with Job at the end of the story. God is not at a loss wondering what to do, nor is he armed uh, with rage and vengeance. He's allowing the satanic wager to become the proving ground of the human ability to trust and honor God in good times or in bad. And God is not the one causing the suffering. God is only manifesting love and goodness. God's heart is not for winning by showing force, but by giving room for love and truth to eventually conquer Satan's worst. This duel will have multi-layers of greater good forged out from evil, thus conquering evil, while developing the human far beyond where he was ever able to go on his own without the suffering. It's not a mere arbitrary lark on God's part. It's seemingly an eternal principle of inescapable reality 
that human formation into sonship is only able to be accomplished and to be manifested uh, in its glory uh, to the degree God intends by passing through the fires of adversity. For the adversity of the adversary, notice the connection there, adversity, adversary, for the adversity of the adversary defeats the adversary with the very weapons the adversary is using to try to destroy the human. This eternal principle is fully and finally manifested in the cross. Though Job cannot see this principle at work, much less see the ultimate cross and resurrection, it is his commitment to what he does know of God that is working to eventually destroy the entire battlefield and restore him to his full true self. This is exactly what Paul is referring to in Romans 8 when he says, I reckon that the sufferings that we're enduring now are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Job doesn't know that yet. We do because we are further along in the unfolding ultimate revelation, but what we can learn from Job is the trusting of what we know of God which will help us endure what we don't know or understand and to trust without accusing God of doing Satan's work. In the next session, we will address the confrontation between Job and his friends where the cosmic battle first seen in the invisible realm is still fully at work in the daily mundane, seemingly small circle of conversations that happened in an everyday earthly setting maybe the kind you and I are living through in our day. Thanks for listening. Till next time, Lord bless you.